The scripture passage for this morning is Romans chapter 8, which you can find on page 1717 of the Pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies.
Good morning. It's great to see all of you here this morning, and happy spring. Um, I didn't plan on doing this, but while listening to to Bill pray, and pray especially for the folks that we know in Ukraine, I I want to return to that for a moment. Uh, I want to... I want to say just a couple quick words about this because it's not the point of the sermon, but all of us in this room need to look at what's happening in Ukraine, not just as a geopolitical tragedy, but as a Christian tragedy. What we're seeing right now in Ukraine is fundamentally a religious war, not just like a strategic military intervention. Um, The Orthodox Church in Ukraine and the Orthodox Church in Russia have historical and spiritual ties that stretch back to the very conversion of Russia. Uh, and what, what's happening right now is that there, there's basically been a decades-long conflict between uh, many of the churches in Ukraine and many of the Orthodox churches in Russia. The patriarch of Russia is a guy named Kirill, and he has argued that uh, the church of Moscow is supposed to be the spiritual head of the church in Ukraine. And as Ukraine and Russia have continued to sort of drift apart culturally and also spiritually, many of the churches in Ukraine have appealed to sort of the head of the Eastern Orthodox churches in Constantinople or now Istanbul, asking that they be granted basically their own authority to govern their own affairs. So what you have to understand is that Putin is an Eastern Orthodox Christian and he listens very closely to the advice of the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, Kirill, and Kirill subscribes to a version of Christianity where he sees Orthodox Christianity in Russia and the Russian state as so closely tied together that they can't be separated. This is why, uh, you know, a lot of times when, when folks talk to me about the issues that I think are most important for the church globally to grapple with today, for me, one of the big ones is the relationship between the church and the state, wherever they live, whether you live in you know, communist China, Eastern Orthodox Russia, separation of church and state, liberal democracy like America. This is one of the big questions for the church to grapple with in the future. Because I look at, uh, I look at countries like Russia where you can find uh, pictures of Orthodox priests blessing with holy water the nuclear weapons that are designed to obliterate you and me you can find pictures of Orthodox priests blessing tanks, you can find pictures of Orthodox priests blessing AK-47s, because they subscribe to a vision of Christianity that assumes that there is such a close relationship between the church and the state that it is a good thing to sanctify nuclear weapons that are designed to obliterate millions, including millions of other Christians. Let that be a warning to all of us. Uh, But let's also return again and pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, the ones who are trying to flee and camp, the ones who are known to us personally. Uh, Pray for them that God will keep the promise that he's given, that he'll provide their daily bread. And pray for them that the verse from the Psalms that says that your loving kindness was made marvelous to me in a besieged city, that will be their, their daily experience. All right, let me turn back to my notes if I can read them. What is this, a church for ants? This podium needs to be at least three times as tall. 
You're going to get a little more ad-lib today. <laughs> I am unreasonably happy about the return of spring, and one of the reasons is that baseball is back. I spent a couple, uh, a couple minutes yesterday just watching through some of the spring training games and watched a little bit of like the, the Cardinals play the Astros uh, just to see Wainwright and Verlander pitch again after like five years of absence uh, because I was in Australia where there was no baseball. And I don't know how anybody else feels, but I feel like I'm just sort of caught in a Faustian bargain now because on the one hand, I want to see the Astros lose all the time, always and forever. But on the other hand, on the other hand, there's this part of me that really wants to see Verlander win 300 games. I mean, the last guy to do that was Randy Johnson. I mean, yeah, it'd just be really cool to see Verlander win. So can, can we all pray that Verlander wins, just, not as a, just that it doesn't help the Astros somehow? I don't know. With God, all things are possible. Um, I was reminded this week to remind all of you that if you weren't able to attend all the sessions from last week with Michael Matheson Miller, they have been recorded and they should now be available on our website. So if you were maybe just present during Sunday worship, but you weren't around to hear like some of the other things he had to say and, and other seminars, apparently everything has been recorded and should be available on the website. So I'd encourage you to check that out. Uh, all right, let's pray and then turn to the text because we didn't ask Sharon to read Romans 8 just so I could do my best Jim Gaffigan impersonation. Heavenly Father, we pray again for our sisters and brothers in Ukraine. We ask that you provide their daily bread, and you do so in such a way that we can only give glory to you, Lord. Uh, <laughs> Lord, where we find our own agency cut short, and we can't send the help that we would want, or where our sisters and brothers are huddling in fear of shelling and artillery and bombing, Lord, they, they know how incredibly weak and vulnerable they are, so show forth your power and strength. Meet every need. Protect them sovereignly and be glorified in your church. Lord, today, help us all to realize our own identity in you, what it means that we are spiritual creatures who bear your image. Uh, Holy Spirit, come and make your truth come alive in all of our hearts, the, the one who's speaking and all those who hear. Lord, your truth is so profound that we cannot grasp it apart from your help, so our first step is just to say, we surrender and we ask for your help. These are the things we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. Um, so today is one of those days where as a preacher, I feel like I have simultaneously way too much to say and not nearly enough to say. So save your space for the questions in, in AMA. I mean, jot them down as you go. I'm gonna be leaving you some gaping holes for you to wonder about, and if you wonder about something, ask. By all means, ask. And the reason I say all this is because today's question is just a monster. What does it mean that human beings created in God's image are spiritual creatures? What does it mean? To be created in God's image is simultaneously not just to be like a meat sack, but is to be a human being who is also spiritual. I have to say, for me, this was one of those questions that every time I tried to answer, just kind of felt like running into the wall, like I was trying to be a roadrunner and like pound through to the other side, and I just ended up smashing face first. 
I want to read you the whole Bible and preach the whole thing today. I mean, just some of the sermons I tried to prepare were like Judges 15, where Samson, the Spirit of God, rushes on him while he's tied up and he snaps the cords and then picks up a donkey's jawbone and strikes down a thousand men by the power of the Spirit. Or 1 Samuel 9, where, uh, where Saul is chosen to be the king of Israel and he's anointed by God and the Spirit rushes on to him and he's transformed into another person. Or skip into, over to the New Testament, Mark 2 and 3. Jesus receives the spirit at his baptism, goes into the wilderness, comes back, and then starts kicking out unclean spirits that have taken up residence inside human bodies. Or Acts 1 and 2, where Jesus tells the whole church to wait for the Holy Spirit. Don't try to do anything with the Holy Spirit, but wait, and then the spirit falls at Pentecost. Or 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul gives us this really powerful image, and he says that one of the reasons you should act as morally upstanding persons is because your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's a really, really instructive thing to say. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. A lot of us are tempted to treat our bodies like amusement parks. But our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Or skipping on again, Galatians 5, where Paul goes through and lists the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of these characteristics, qualities, virtues that start to mark the Christian life because not because they're good and they've worked really hard, but because the spirit is at residence within the Christian. But at the end of the day, I decided probably the way to go was to start with Romans 8. And I think it's gonna become clear in a minute why, but before I go there, let me just recap a little bit. Those of you who heard me, I don't know, three weeks, a month ago now, when we first started this series, and I had the privilege to teach on Genesis 1 and 2 and on the creation, uh, the creation narratives and what it meant to be a human being. Well, remember that I kind of boiled what it means to, to be human beings created in the image of God down to just a few key points. And the first one is that whatever it means to bear God's image, it means being God's child in the same way that Seth was Adam's child and Seth was after Adam's own image and likeness. And also, whatever else it means to bear the image of God, it means that you are created to rule all of creation. That you are the locus, uh, uh, like the created physical presence in the world where God is also present, exercising his providential rule over all creation. And then lastly, whatever else it means to be a human being who bears the image of God, it means that God has breathed into you given you the breath of life, sustaining you, making you who you are and what you are. And what I also noted after pointing out that all of those three things have to be true, whatever else we say about the image of God, I looked at Colossians chapter one. And in Colossians chapter one, we see all of those three, three themes come back together, spirit, son, ruler, except this time they're all concentrated in one person and that one person is Jesus. Because whatever happened in, in Genesis, we all know that the image of God is suddenly uh, like cast out into the wilderness because they've sinned, because Adam and Eve have sinned. Even though we're bearing the image of God, every human being wrestles with the reality that every other human being and they themselves are sinful. But in Jesus, something that once went wrong starts to go right again because Jesus has victory over sin, world flesh, devil. And so this is why I come back to Romans, because if we start in Genesis, the truth of the image of God 
that all goes wrong in the fall, and we come back through Colossians to Jesus Christ where the image of God is suddenly restored in perfection, Romans explains how Jesus' reconstitution of the perfect image of God becomes available to all of us today. That by the Spirit, we become children of God. That by the Spirit, we become the rulers of God. So, let me just give you some of the context here. I know I'm using slides. I promise I'm not a Terminator. Don't get comfortable with it. Anybody think I can preach Romans 1 to 7 in five minutes? Let's find out. Okay, this is just the quick overview so that you understand what's going on in Romans 8. Romans 1, Paul basically argues that all humanity lives in a state of profound moral confusion. We don't know what's good, we don't know what's bad, we do our best to muddle through, we try really, really hard, but our minds are not reliable. Reality is so complex and our minds have been like, so choked off by the absence of the presence of God that no matter how hard we try, we can't always come to perfect decisions about what's good and what's bad. So we end up doing bad things and assuming that they're good things in the same way that Russian Orthodox priests in the past have thought it was a good thing to bless nuclear weapons. That's, the, that's like a profound example of the sinful intellect that's trying its best to figure out the good, misses it. Okay, but what about the folks who have a pretty reliable written testament to what's good and what's bad, i.e. Israel and everybody who goes and reads the law. Well, they know what's good and what's bad. Paul says, but even the folks who know what's good and what's bad, because God wrote it down for them, end up getting it wrong. And they find that they can't perfectly keep the law. Uh, We've been going through Ezekiel for a very long time, and one of the most baffling bits of Ezekiel is the portion where God uh, says that when he gave them the law, he gave them some commandments that he knew that weren't good and that they wouldn't be able to live by. He didn't do that because he was mean. He gave that to them because he was giving them the perfect instantiation of the truth, even though he knew that human beings are so weakened by sin that they can't fulfill the law in their own power. Okay, so human beings are ignorant, and human beings, even the ones who know what's right, are too weak to act in accordance with what they know is right. We get to Romans 3. Why is that? It's because sin has taken up residence in human bodies. Human bodies, the flesh, have such a profound tendency to do what's wrong, to act out of accordance with the will of God, that no mind, however perfect, can will its body into perfect submission. But there's this guy named Jesus who manages to live righteously, fulfill the law, and please God. So at some level it's possible, but on the other hand, it's Jesus, right? Okay, so that brings us to Romans 4. What does it mean to actually please God? Well, it means righteousness. And righteousness, by the way, was available to human beings even before the coming of the law, and the way that you know that is because Abraham pleased God with his faithfulness. Which brings us to Romans 5. Paul basically says that when you boil it down, there's two big ways of being human. You're either in Adam, that is fleshly and subject to death, or you're in Christ, in Jesus, right now inheriting life. Only two ways to be, and you are inevitably either dying or being resurrected. Which brings us to Romans 6. Okay, if you think you're in Christ, and Christ pleased God by his faithfulness, 
which implied that he didn't sin, he was like us in every way, yet without sin, well, then you should also live free from sin the way Jesus did. Anybody feeling anxious at this point? Yeah, and that's, that's where we get to Romans 7. Because in Romans 7, we get this dramatic monologue from the, basically Paul puts words in somebody else's mouth saying, whoa, 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 I think I'm in Christ Jesus. I know what's right. I agree with it. I really want to do it, but I keep finding myself falling flat again and again and again and again. I can't do it. How do I do it? Who will free me from this body of death? That's the question that brings us to Romans 8. If you can't look at yourself in the mirror and say, wretch that I am, what is going on? Why can't I do what's good? Then you'll never really understand what's going on in Romans 8. So, first point from Romans 8. Because Jesus dealt with sin, we can all live lives of righteousness and please God. So think to yourself, when was the last time that you looked at yourself in the mirror and said, why did I do that? How on earth could I be that dumb? Um, so many of you know that my wife is laid up recovering from surgery right now, and that means that I'm taking care of two little kids, basically a soon-to-be four-year-old and a soon-to-be two-year-old. And there are some times where their needs are so great and so conflicting that I just find myself where it just feels like I'm drifting in the sea and it, it just makes me mad. Like, I can do nothing. I can't take care of my daughter because that means my son's gonna go crazy and if I take care of my son, that means my daughter's gonna start, I don't know, like pounding holes in the wall with a big green dinosaur and I, I just can't win. So I feel myself, I feel like that, that like Hulk anger rising up in me. This is one of those times where I've seen like both my sinfulness and the fruit of the Spirit at work at the same time because instead of raging at my kids, I feel that, like, the anger that could make me rage at my kids, but I also feel self-control, which is not mine, and which, <laughs> and which keeps me under control. But then I still go look at myself in the mirror and say, the anger of man doesn't achieve the righteousness of God. I love my kids. Why am I so angry? What is going on? I mean, look, think back to whatever it was, the time when you woke up next to an empty bottle again, or the time when you had to clear your internet search history for the umpteenth time, or the time when you snapped at your spouse. I mean, it happens to all of us, right? Where we find that no matter how much we love and want to agree with the will and the word of God, we find ourselves doing the other thing. So, what's going on? The great news of Romans 8, or at least these first four verses, is that if you're in Christ, Paul's pretty clear. You can live a life of righteousness that fulfills the requirement of the law and pleases God. And that's at least first because he sent Jesus, God sends Jesus as a sinner offering that deals with sin. So something's going on there. There's the possibility of forgiveness of sin. But all of us have had our sins forgiven. Those of us who in this room would say, We've repented, been baptized, come to Jesus, are trying to walk by the Spirit, making every effort to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. So how do we do it? And here's the answer, is we become spiritual. Uh, depending on what translation you're reading, Romans 8, 5 to 8 might, might say something like, but we who live according to the Spirit walk according to the Spirit. Um, that's a well-intentioned, but not quite accurate translation of Romans 8. What it really says is those who exist 
according to the Spirit, i.e. those whose principle of life, if you go back to Romans 5, is no longer Adam, but is now Jesus. Those who exist in the Spirit, which is, by the way, the Spirit of Jesus. Something happens when we come to Christ that doesn't just change the way we live, but that changes who we are so fundamentally that there are now new possibilities for action that just weren't there before. Whatever's going on in Jesus, it's taken care of the problems of Romans 1 and 2 so that we can now, one, know what God wants us to do, and two, we have the force of will and character to actually practically walk in a way that's free from sin. Our nature has changed in Jesus. We are not born of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. And this is a point where I have to say that Christians generally part company with the world around them, whether, whether we're talking about Christians in antiquity or whether we're talking about like, the world around us today. I mean, do any of you guys like ride horses? Yeah, a few of you ride horses. I mean, one of the prevailing theories in antiquity about why people do bad things was basically that your soul was like a collection of horses pulling a chariot. And some of the horses are good and want to do the, the good thing, and some of the horses are bad. So bad horsey. And your job is to educate the horses. Get control of the bad ones so that you can pull the chariot of your soul in a straight line. Education is the clue, is the key, is the answer. Okay. That's an appealing answer, but as far as Paul's concerned, Romans 2 rules it out. Even if you know the right thing, you can tell somebody the right thing a thousand times over, and it doesn't matter who they are, eventually, they're going to veer off the course. Or, you know, a theory today, theories of, uh, of about more, uh, moral life today, on the one hand, have a lot to do with what Plato said then. They would say, well, people do the wrong thing because they're ignorant. We just got to teach them what the right thing is. But we get a little more nuanced than that. We would also say, you know, hurt people hurt people. One of the big problems that's driving us uh, to do bad things today is that we're all victims of trauma. So if we can keep the environment under control so that people grow up feeling loved and nurtured and supported and able to express who they really are, well, then they're going to do better and we're all going to be better for it. And Paul's answer, again, is no. You could raise a person in, I don't know, the moral equivalent of a glass bubble where there was nothing adversely affecting their character and still from the inside, sin would come out and people would still do the wrong thing. And this is why Romans, 5, uh, Romans 8, 5 to 8 is important. You have to actually change the nature of your existence. And it's not so much that you have to change it as that God does the changing by uniting you to Christ in the spirit of Christ. So skipping on then to verses 9 to 13. If the spirit of Jesus is in you, this is the logic. If the spirit of Jesus is in you and the spirit raised Jesus' dead body back to life, and sin is the principle of death, then right now, if that same spirit is in you, then it doesn't matter how dead your body is, the resurrection power of God right now is more powerful than the death that wants to have its way with your body. Is there anybody else who's looking forward to Easter this year? Yeah. yeah, it's my favorite day of the year. If you ever want to see me ugly cry, just wait for Easter. Um, and it's, it's, some of you know this has also been a year where there have been some very difficult personal losses in my family. Some folks who I love have died. Very recently, I was able to 
attend a virtual funeral of perhaps the greatest man I've ever met. Uh, I called him Uncle Tunde. Uh, his name was Baba Tunde Ogunike. Uh, he's a Nigerian national. He was born in Nigeria, came to the, came to the United States for a lot of his schooling, uh, met my father while they were both doing their PhDs at the University of Wisconsin, and my Uncle Tunde, he just went on to kind of change the world, like the Nigerian national anthem, he wrote a lot of it. As an academic, uh, he was a chemical engineer. Like, he was one of those sort of pivotal figures in his field where there's like before Tunde and after Tunde because he just changed the game. Uh, his children are remarkable. Two PhDs from Harvard and a third one completing his PhD at MIT. And even if all of those things weren't true, he was just a powerful Christian, one of the most powerful Christians I've ever met. Uh, in the midst of the really intense suffering with like the cancer that eventually took his life, he would walk around his house joyful, thankful that he had more than enough. Didn't matter how bad he was hurting. He was joyful, abounding in joy. Um, and I owe him a personal debt because there was a time when, when my father was trying to decide, like, it's a pivotal moment in his life. He had two job offers after finishing his PhD. One was to go to the university where he now teaches in West Michigan called Grand Valley State University. And the other one was to a big university that you definitely know, even if you've never heard of Grand Valley, because who's heard of Grand Valley? And my dad was super confused, because when he prayed, he thought God was leading him to Grand Valley. And he's like, that makes no sense. Can I go to the, like, to the good university, please? And so as he's praying about it, he comes down with this list of five reasons why he thinks that God is calling him to go to Grand Valley State University, which is insane. It is a decision you can explain to nobody. And then the phone rings, and on the other end of the phone is my Uncle Tunde saying, I've been praying for you, and I think God is leading you to Grand Valley State University, and here are the five reasons why. And he reads over the phone the exact list back to my dad. So I look forward to seeing my Uncle Tunde and the resurrection. But I'm also challenged right now to try and live the same resurrection life that my Uncle Tunde exemplified. The same resurrection life that led him to be joyful in the midst of suffering. The same resurrection life that led him to like humbly submit. Like this is the most brilliant man I've ever met. His IQ is off the charts. But he recognized enough the limitations of his own mind that when he went to pray for guidance for my dad, he listened to what the Holy Spirit would tell him instead of what good advice my Uncle Tunde could give him based on his natural intellect. And he came away with something that I can only explain, of, explain as a prophetic word. So I would say this is one of the things that it means right now to be a spiritual Christian is that by the power of the Spirit, we have victory over our flesh and the sin that's there, and we have the capacity to love and to serve one another with, with power that isn't our own. So go and read 1 Corinthians 12 and read the gifts of the Holy Spirit there, and Paul's clear that every one of us have at least one gift of the Spirit that God gives us, not for ourselves, but for each other. So read them and ask God for them, and go read Galatians 5 and read the, the list of the fruits of the Spirit there, and at this time of Lent, which is a time of sort of introspection and repentance, Ask yourself which ones of the fruits of the Spirit are most lacking right now and then humbly ask God that he will give you more of the Holy Spirit and that the fruit of the Spirit will abound in that area. Okay, skipping on to verses 14 to 17. 
Because we have the Spirit of Christ, we are right now God's children, just like Jesus is God's son. The interesting thing about these verses is that they say that our, our childhood, our childlike relationship to God is a relationship of adoption. In the way that Jesus is God's son by nature, we are God's children by adoption. And the spirit is the means of our adoption. And the spirit is Jesus' spirit. So if you're unified to Christ, like Romans 5, you're either unified with Adam and death or you're unified with Jesus in life. You're unified with Jesus in life. Jesus' spirit is in you. Jesus is the son of God. Therefore, the presence of the spirit within you makes you God's child because you are unified with his son. That's the logic. But it's fantastic news. It means, I mean, if you looked at a passage like Ephesians 2, that even though you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, even if you were once the subject of the prince of the power of the air, who is a spirit that is now at work among the sons of disobedience, right now we are no longer children of wrath in obedience to the prince of the power of the air. We are now children of righteousness united to Jesus. The great thing about being God's child is then that you get to rule and reign with his child, Jesus. The rulership of all creation that we lost at Eden, that we handed over to the devil, so that even at the time when Jesus himself goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, Satan can say to Jesus, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world for they've been handed over me. But Jesus conquers. And because Jesus conquered and because we're with him, we have regained and are regaining and will ultimately receive the kingdom of God, new heavens, new earth. This is the great news, is that the resurrection life that we enjoy right now that give us victory over sin, one day becomes perfected in the resurrection of our physical bodies without sin, and at the same time, all of creation gets renewed. So, I mean, the, the greatest experience of the created world that you've ever had, picture whatever it is, and I mean, Niagara Falls, hiking in the wilderness, just sitting and staring calmly at a flower, whatever. All we've ever seen of the created world is the created world struggling against the corruption of death. One day, the created world is going to be freed entirely of corruption and death, and so is your mortal body, which is part of the created order, and you get to live and reign over all of that created order forever along with Jesus Christ. So one of the things that I've learned about the Christian life, never mind the Christian life, about life period, is that it's pretty much impossible to live it without hope of some kind. Uh, think about the toughest thing that you've ever done in your life, whether it was you know, your, your college education or graduate school, whether it was sticking it out during a tough season in your marriage, maybe it was having to endure a major medical intervention in your body, a big surgery, chemotherapy, something like that. How did you make it through? Why, how and why did you make it through? Because there are lots of people who don't. There are lots of people in the same circumstances that many of us who have survived and gone on to thrive just said, nope, I can't do this anymore. And they give up. How did you make it through? You had hope for something on the other side of it. 
At some level, you decided that what, however bad this is right now, there is something good available on the other side of it, and I'm going to keep pushing until I find out if I can have it, because it's worth the suffering now. This is why Romans 8 says that if we suffer with him now, we will rule with him then. So unless and until you can get such a fire in your belly for the hope of the resurrection from the dead and the renewed creations that are going to be your inheritance forever, your hope is always going to be a little bit deficient. You're always going to be a little bit more subject to weakness and sin and temptation because your hope isn't rightly ordered in the promises of God. And the promise of God is that he is giving you the whole world as your inheritance. Everything Putin can bomb it all he wants, but he can't take it with him. So, in conclusion, I just want to say that the message of Romans 1 to 8 is basically the message of Genesis 1 to 2. You are God's child. You are created in God to rule the whole world and God is giving you the Holy Spirit so that you can be the walking, talking temple that carries his presence all through it. So what should you do? First, become spiritual people. Become spiritual people. This is something that we all grow up into. If you were gonna go and look at what Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 2 and 3, he basically divides the Christian life into three stages. Some of us are Christians, but we're still fleshly, i.e., we're, we're like the person talking in Romans 7 who's like, oh my gosh, I really wanna do that, but there's still all this sin in my body that's holding me down. Paul says, yep, that's where you start. You have the Holy Spirit, but you're still fleshly. You can grow a little bit, and you can become what Paul call, calls sort of a soulish person, Kind of torn between the two, but you're on the way, so don't lose heart until finally you come to Christian maturity that he calls being spiritual. And how do you grow? He says you need to receive the spiritual food that's calibrated to help you grow. When you're a baby, you need milk. When you're growing up, you need solid food. Where do you find it? You find it in the word of God. The, the greatest description of our transformation into spiritual people that I know of uh, in the Bible is 2 Corinthians chapter three. And if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter three, verses 14 to 18, what Paul says basically is that all scripture is like a mirror. But it's covered by a veil for most folks. But if you're not a Christian and you really look hard at scripture, it doesn't matter how smart you are, you're going to, you're going to get some things, but you're gonna miss the true divine content hidden underneath. Because you know that, what that divine content is, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you really grasp the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you're converted. So you're missing something. But, so how does the veil fall away from before scripture so that we come to him and so that we begin to be transformed by him? He says, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, liberty. The veil falls away from the law by the power of the spirit and we start to read it, we start to look at it, we start to see it for what it really is. But this is a mirror, have you guys ever read Harry Potter? Yeah, you remember the mirror of Erised? So it's like, I think it's in the first Harry Potter book where Harry Potter, he looks in the mirror and he sees what his heart truly desires, he doesn't see his own reflection come back to him, but he sees his family in the mirror. Scripture's a mirror like that. You look into the mirror of the word, Paul says, and you see a face coming back at you, but it's not your face. It's Jesus' face. 
And the more you look into this mirror, instead of you fixing your hair and applying your makeup or shaving or whatever, the, you know, the many, many, many things we do in the mirror, you know, check up our nose, brush our teeth, this mirror of the word transforms the way we look so that we come to resemble the Lord Jesus. So the longer you gaze into the mirror of the word, and the more you look by the power of the Holy Spirit into the mirror of the word, the more you come to become and resemble your Lord Jesus in every way. So go study your Bibles. Be hungry for spiritual truth so that by it you may grow up in salvation. Um, worship team, you can get ready to come up. This, I've alluded to it already in this sermon. Some of you know that my wife is recovering from a pretty major foot surgery. She's got two good-sized metal plates in her right foot that didn't used to be there. I want you to think of those metal plates the way you think of the Holy Spirit. My wife's human nature was smashed up in a fall. It wasn't going to be able to heal itself on its own. But a surgeon comes in and inserts the metal plates, one, so that the nature is healed, and also so that for the rest of her life, that part of her body is stronger than it ever was or could have been on its own. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in you. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that makes you God's children. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that gives you victory over sin. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that prepares you right now you, by the resurrection power that's already at work in you to eventually rule and reign in the renewed heavens and renewed earth. So this is my prayer for myself and for you and for all of us today. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.